And we are back on the Boots on the Ground pod alongside Ben Conroy. I am Essex Thayer. Before we get started, Ben, a thought that crossed my mind as I was creating the recording for this podcast, and it was the fact that we, we've we've hit a bit of a milestone here at the Boots on the Ground pod. This is our 30th podcast. So if it, it's, it's pretty wild. We've actually been around for, it feels like it's been like a snap, but we started this in what, August, September? Like yeah. we've been doing this for for a while now. Yeah, we started it in the build up to football season. I remember just kind of having a discussion, saying, "Hey, why not? Why not give this thing a try?" And we have been fortunate enough to get a couple of listeners here and there. So we appreciate all of you, and you know, it's something we we look forward to doing every week, and and really enjoy covering this team and uh, this university. So thank you, everyone, for your continued support. Much, much more to come. Yeah, thank you for all that. That that'll be enough of the sentimentals from us. Uh, on to the the business end of this podcast, and that comes down to what happened on Monday night in Durham, Wake Forest, tightly contested game. I mean, they certainly did not shy away in Cameron Indoor, but eventually a loss to Duke, seventy seven sixty nine. And th- there's a couple different aspects I want to talk about when it comes to this game, Ben. And it, the first I want to talk about is the, the uh, we'll go half by half because I think that's kind of the way that the split goes with this game. It was a half by half split. In the first half, Wake Forest seemingly could not hit water with a beach ball. They shot 11 of 39 from the field. That's 28% for y'all keeping score at home and did a little bit better from three point range, four of 19, 21%, but I mean, they started over, I like I think a double digit number from three point range. Like it was, I think it was eleven. I think it was eleven. Yeah, something along those lines. Where Wake Forest was really struggling to shoot the ball, and for that matter, Duke was too. They didn't shoot that much better in the first half. Looking at it now, they shot thirty five percent to the uh, from the field. So both teams, you know, coming off a short short break, both teams had games on Saturday. They didn't have to come back and play on Monday maybe a little fatigue, maybe a little something else. There are those hoops at, at Cameron Indoor that they are hanging from the, the ceiling of the arena. That can maybe throw you off a little bit. You know, numerous things that could have led to it, but the, the shooting just felt off for Wake Forest, and, and most notably in, in that first half. Things just, they couldn't get things going, Ben. Yeah, and Steve Forbes talked about it after the game. It's not like they were taking bad shots in the first half. I actually... You know, Steve Forbes said, I thought the shot selection was pretty good. I did, too, from my vantage point in Cameron. I thought they got a lot of in-rhythm, good looks from three. Hunter Salas played played very well all throughout the game. He was the only one who could really hit anything, but the shots just were not falling for the longest time. And that was what made it such an especially frustrating game for Wake Forest fans because Duke looked very, very human in the first half. And Wake, I thought, played some outstanding defense in the first half limiting Tyrese Proctor, limiting Kyle Filipowski a little bit in the first half. Mark Mitchell kind of just dominated for Duke the entire game. But Duke didn't really have a great rhythm offensively in the first half. I think they turned it over eight times in the first half. So, you know, the pieces were there for Wake Forest to take that game on the road. It was very tightly contested. Kyle Filipowski hit a bucket at the end of the half to put Duke up two. I think, going into the second half. But I think we were all thinking it at halftime, man, if Wake can just even shoot their season average from the three-point line from the field, then you know this game could turn into Wake's favor. And unfortunately, in the second half, which we'll get into, that just didn't hold up. Duke scores 48 points. Wake actually shoots very well from the field in the second half. I think they went 16 of 30 from the field in the second half. So that's you know scoring as often as you want, but just down the stretch when the game was between that six and eight point range, Wake just could not get enough stops on the defensive end, whether it was Mark Mitchell, Jared McCain got hot off the dribble for a second, just not able to find the consistent defense enough to generate a comeback on the road against a very, very good Duke team. A lot of that has to do, I think, with Efton Reed's struggles to stay on the court during this game, which we will touch on more later, but that was, I think, a major determining factor in this game. Yeah, I mean, I think the story of that first half was like Wake Forest was hanging around in that game. And anytime you can go and and hang around against a good team, kind of like what Wake Forest did to North Carolina at the Dean Dome earlier this season, when you're hanging around with a good team for a half, you know, that's a really good sign. And with the way Wake Forest was playing offensively, 
you think, okay, exactly kind of what you said, Ben, that maybe, maybe something can happen here. I think I remember tweeting something along those lines. Like, you know, if Wake Forest turns it up a little bit on offense, they might have something brewing here in Durham. Uh, and, you know, you said if they could get back to their kind of season average, that, then they have a shot here. And I think that's what we were all thinking, right? And in that sense, they did. I mean, the, the field goal percentage, as you said, sprang up to 53%. The only issue was Duke went up even more. They shot 62.5% in the second half. They scored 48 points, as you said. And the biggest thing, something that Steve Forbes pointed out in the post-game press conference is Wake Forest did not record a single kill in the second half for those looking for what a kill is. That's three straight stops. It's something that Steve Forbes preaches with his team often talks about kills in almost every post-game presser. And he noted, I think it was four that they had four kills in the first half. Don't, don't take me, you know, at my word on that, but something in that range, a, a, a solid number of kills in the first half and then zero in the second felt like Wake Forest just when they needed it, when they needed it most, could not get that one stop that could kind of get them back into the game a little bit, get them closer to the finish line. Just felt like if, God, if you could get one kill, if you could get three stops in a row, the way Wake Forest was shooting the ball, the way Hunter Salas was playing, you could potentially get back into that game. But something, you know, just you couldn't get, you just couldn't get quite there. And so it's funny because the the score line, you know, Wake Forest loses by, what was it, nine points? Or loses by eight points rather that you would say, okay, like that's a, that's a, it's a fine loss, but it's not like the past wake losses where you go in and you lose by two. The last time wake for the past two times wake force goes to Cameron. And I would kind of argue with that statement that that, that game was a lot closer than the scoreline. I mean, it felt like with just little one little turn, like wake force potentially could have flipped that game on its head but Duke just kept Wake at arm's length just enough. And there were just a few moments that stood out to me when it was like, when I was saying Wake Forest's defense couldn't get a stop. It just felt like that one stop could have changed everything. So I remember Wake Forest scores a bucket to get within six. And I think it was like eight, six minutes, something like that left on the clock. John Shire was really annoyed about something, argued with the refs. And then just started waving his hands around like a madman. And in response, Cameron gets incredibly loud. One of the loudest kind of uniting cheers of the evening for Duke. And then one of the guards, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, was it Jeremy Roach who? Jeremy Roach come, pulled up from the wing right in front of John yeah. Shire. Yeah, he gets that. He gets that pick. Wake Forest doesn't blitz the pick. They drop, it, I believe, because of something that, we'll talk about later and hits a three. So Wake Forest goes from down six to down nine where they could have gotten this stop. And consequently, Cameron absolutely explodes. It felt like that was the loudest it had gotten all night. I mean, when that three went down, people, especially I was sitting on press row right in front of the Cameron crazies. It felt like people were literally just losing their absolute minds. So just in conclusion there, Felt like Wake Forest was one or two stops away defensively and could just never get those stops to kind of put the game a lot closer. And, and that's what it kind of comes down to in the game. You have an offense that was really good in the first half or really disappointing in the first half and then really good in the second half. A defense that was strong in the first half and, and not as good in the second. And I think, you know, to, to win at Cameron, you got to put together a, a full 40 minutes or at least as close as you can come to that. And, and with the way Duke was playing, you, you maybe didn't even need a full 40, but you needed just a little bit more out of what Wake Forest got. Yeah. And another moment I want to discuss was right at the end of the game, which I think was just sort of a summary of the night for Wake Forest. So Wake trailed by five with, I think, under a minute to go. And they scored and Duke got the ball and Wake played great defense and forced a turnover, got a steal, and then had the had the ball in transition. And Damari Monsanto had a wide open look at it in transition. And Wake was down five and he missed the first one. And then they got the offensive rebound and he had another wide open look at it from beyond the arc in two in rhythm threes from your go to three point shooter who, to be fair, is still coming back from injury. That was probably the most minutes he's played, I think, in over a year is what I heard. 
So he's tired at that point. It's the end of the game. Understandable. But even so, you just think that that's the moment where they cut it to two and then they get the stop and then they have the, that chance to get over the hump and it just the shots just would not fall for them consistently enough. So that was, you know, from that moment, I was just like, well, that's just the kind of night that it was for Wake Forest. Just not quite enough consistent offense, not quite enough consistent defense. In terms of margin of victory, this game played out about the way I thought it would. I think I predicted Duke winning by seven. I didn't anticipate both teams to struggle the way they did offensively in the first half. So the game was a little bit more, a little bit lower scoring than I predicted. It predicted. I think I had 81-74 Duke, something like that. But yeah, it was just, I think Duke, I don't think Wake ever led in that game. I think it was pretty much Duke's game to lose the entire time. And, but it's not like, I, I like the way you put it, Essex, with at arm's length, because I don't think Duke ever took like a double digit lead in this game. Or if they did, it was maybe only 10 points. I think it, it hovered between that nine and about four point range for seemingly the entire game. And Wake was just a couple moments away from sort of getting over that hump and having a chance to, you know, maybe take the game to overtime, maybe steal one in regulation. You never know. Another thing I want to talk about, which I thought was really interesting, was the Parker Fredrickson, Boopy Miller dichotomy in the second half. So when I was watching this game, one of the things I noticed in the second half, I was like, wow, Booby Miller has been on the bench for a long time. He's been sitting out for a while. And that was because Parker Fredrickson was playing so well. For his first game in Cameron Indoor, he played some fantastic basketball. He was one of the few Demon Deacons to really, you know, have some level of success from the three-point line. I think he had two threes. He had a couple, you know, he had a at least one big breakaway steal that led to a layup. But more than that, he just played heads up basketball, didn't turn the ball over, showed, I think, remarkable poise for a freshman and as hostile a road environment as you will find in the country. So, you know, a very promising sign for Wake Forest fans and another sign of just how well Parker Fredrickson is developing. And then a not so great performance from from Boopy Miller, really just a struggle to get things going on the road. He finished, you know, one of seven from the field, a minus eight. Just wasn't really able to get things going and be that efficient player that I think he needed to be in order for Wake to have a better chance to win this game. I like you bringing up Parker Fredrickson because he played, what was it? It was, he played 23 minutes. His first game in Durham, he's a freshman. I mean, Parker has been fantastic. The the three-point percentage has dipped a little bit, I think. I'm not saying that for sure, but I just feel like it's dipped a little bit. I think his impact has been the same for Wake Forest. I think he's just such a dynamic player. Another three-point threat that you can have. He's been a pretty solid defender for his height and for his weight. Just he's he's not a very big player right now as a freshman. So I, I think he's been been great for, for his age and, and what he's able to bring to the table for Wake Forest. And I think he needs to be playing more. Like I think that 23-minute mark, I think that's right around where Wake Forest needs him to be right now. Just the way he's playing. I think 20 to 25 minutes a game, you're a sixth man off the bench. He feels like he's the guy. Like he's a, he's kind of the guy that Wake Forest needs right now. And when you bring up Parker, one of the thoughts, kind of a segue that came to mind is Parker was plus eight or Wake Forest rather was plus eight when Parker was on the floor. Just one of two Wake Forest players to be positive in the plus minus department in that game. The other Efton Reed. And it was the one player that he was plus six in that game. He scored eight points. He was actually very strong in the post, I think, offensively. Three for six from the field. Four offensive rebounds that he's credited with on stat broadcast. They gave two to the team. And I think those two to the team also should go to Efton Reed. Like he has those kind of those, uh, even trying to think of how you would put it, like he kind of volleyballs them out, like punches out offensive rebounds to the arc. So I'm giving it's four, but I'm, I would give more offensive rebounds to Efton Reed. Highly, highly impactful performance from Efton. The only problem he played 15 minutes, your starting center. And I tweeted about this, your starting center, who I would argue is your second most impactful player on the team right now behind Hunter Salas played 15 minutes against Duke. He's one of the two players with a positive plus minus. And he plays 15 minutes. You got to have him play more than 15 minutes against Duke to win in Cameron. And the reason he's playing 15 minutes 
is because of foul trouble. He has four fouls. He gets three fouls by the half. And Wake Forest has to minimize how much he plays in the first half because of those fouls. He plays eight minutes in the first half. You hold him at three. You at least get him to half with three. And then you come out in the second half. And in the first 30 seconds, he gets his fourth foul. And in that moment, when that happens, you can feel it. Even as Wake Forest, they always, again, arm's length, they were always kind of right there in this game. But you could feel a mild derailment of what Wake Forest wanted to do when Efton Reed got that first foul or that fourth foul at the like 1929 mark in the second half. It's just brutal. It's really, really rough when you have your second most impactful player on four fouls with 19 and a half minutes rem- remaining in the game in Durham at Cameron Indoor. It's really, really hard to win that way. And I, I have to give the Wake, the Wake Forest coaching staff credit. They managed it incredibly well. They went small several times. They had Andrew Carr at the five and Damari Monsanto at the four. They were able to extend some of those minutes with Efton, at least try and get him in and keep him from getting his fifth until a few minutes remained in the game. But you just can't, you can't have him get that foul. And I, we talked about this before he went on air, Ben, just what, what Steve Forbes discussed on his, on his coaching show um, yesterday on Wednesday evening, just that how much it hurt Wake Forest to not have Efton on the court. I'm going to pull up this quote here because I think it's, it's really important to, I got it here. I can read it. If, yeah, go ahead, Ben. So Cam Debro put this put this thread out on Twitter over at 247. So Steve Forbes on Efton Reed's foul trouble. I got after him pretty hard after the game, first time ever. I just felt like he let us down. It's one thing to foul, another for silly fouls. He'll get some crazy calls. I get it. When he was on the court, they couldn't guard him, which transitions into a point I want to get into a little a little bit later. They were getting to the rim of the second half because he wasn't on the court and then Andrew wasn't on the court. Who could survive that? And then he compares it to Clemson. If he took PJ Hall and Ian Shefflin off the court, what does that do to Clemson? And then the most powerful portion of the entire quote, he's got to change. He's got to quit committing silly fouls. And maybe I have to rethink. I've always played a guy with two fouls in the first. I think it hardly ever happens to you that you get your third. He seems to get his third and his fourth. So I think those are powerful words from Steve Forbes. And he kind of realizes the gravity of the situation. And it's maddening because in the second half, in the limited time that Efton Reed was out there, he was eating against Kyle Filipowski. He loved that matchup against Filipowski. And Filipowski looked frustrated. Reed was scoring down low. He was rebounding. He disrupted Duke's flow, I think, on both ends of the court. And then he picks up a fifth foul. And then he's out of the game. And then Wake has to figure out how to operate without him. And as well as I think Damari Monsanto played and as good of a job as he did Mark Mitchell had a fantastic game at the four because a lot of the time he was out there playing against a much smaller and still limited physically Demario Monsanto. Mark Mitchell was nine of 14 for 23 points and a, and really just, you know, was able to get whatever he wanted the entire night. And that was just, it's just the identity and the composition and the makeup of this Wake Forest team changes when Efton Reed is not able to be out there. I, I said it on Twitter after the game feels like Efton Reed is in foul trouble so much that I haven't seen him fully unleashed yet. I was watching him in that second half in those few minutes and I was like, yes, this, this is what you, this is what you wanted in the portal. This is why you went and got this guy. Cause he's going toe to toe with one of the best big men in the country and proving not only that he belongs, but that is a matchup that he is winning at that point in time. And then just those flashes and those glimpses are, are maddeningly brief for this Wake Forest team, especially when they're trying to come back on the road. They absolutely have the talent to win that game but you just got to have your guys out there. That's just what it comes down to. I agree. It's it's Forbes mentioned it also in his post game presser at Duke and it made its way into my game story. He just that his foul trouble really hurt Wake Forest. Like that was something that Steve Forbes brought up after the game. Right after it ended, he's able to acknowledge the fact that that Efton Reed not being out there really really hurt the team. And I think that's telling to go along with what he said Wednesday night. And so I know Krishna Jackson, our, our good friend, Oge Hoops, did some digging on this on Twitter. I also ended up doing some digging in regards to the preview I wrote for Virginia, which will be out Friday morning on Blogger So Dear. But it the fouling has just become a, a really big issue for Efton Reed. It's not just the Duke game. So since he began starting for Wake Forest, he played a few games off the bench after his waiver was granted. Uh, once he began starting, 
Efton has averaged 3.57 fouls per game. So over three and a half fouls per game. He's reached at least four fouls seven times and fouled out twice. That's a lot of times when you're reaching at least four fouls seven times where Wake Forest is having to manage him because he's getting into serious foul trouble. I have up on, on Kempom his minutes when the fouls get a little hairy. Against Duke, you have the 15 minutes, five fouls. In, let's see, uh, NC State, where Wake Forest lost at NC State, another game he fouled out in, he was only able to give 22 minutes. Like, moments like those when he has 28 against Florida State with four fouls. Like, you can see when Efton Reed gets into foul trouble that the minutes take a dip. And so you need more out of him simply i posed the question on twitter and i posed it in my preview as well you get 15 minutes out of afton reed against duke with how he was performing what happens if you get 25 what happens if you get 30 out of him does wake forest beat duke and durham maybe we don't know the answer to that but maybe um and so it's just, and I, you know, Forbes mentioning it, clearly it's a good thing. At least it's front of mind. You know, it's something that's being called out. Hopefully there are some adjustments to it down the stretch because, you know, I'm not, we, we're not trying to take anything away from Efton Reed here. In fact, we're trying to display how important of a player he is, how good of a player he is and how much Wake Forest needs him. And it's the fouls that are keeping him from being that top, top tier player that Wake Forest needs him to be to go make the NCAA tournament. So we'll, we'll see how it applies um, down the stretch. We'll see how it applies to Virginia on Saturday. And speaking of the NCAA tournament, before we just get into our last segment on Virginia, uh, just it's, it's kind of right there on the table, regardless of the fact that, that Wake Forest lost to Duke Monday night. It's seemingly right on the table for Wake Forest. They're pretty solidly fourth in the ACC. So down the stretch, number one, you're going to be fighting for that double buy in the ACC tournament. That's going to be really, really important, not only for the tournament itself, but for the narrative that might be percolating on Wake Forest in, in its attempts to get back to March Madness. Um, according to, to Bart Torvik, Wake Forest has a 68.9% chance of making the NCAA tournament right now, a 13% chance of winning the auto bid in Washington, D.C. in March. And has them as a nine seed right now. Obviously, the bracketologists do not have them as a nine seed. They have them on the bubble. But the metrics are saying that Wake Forest is a nine seed. Um, you look at Saturday and how important that game is, according to Torvik. If Wake Forest beats Virginia in Charlottesville on Saturday, that percentage chance of going to the NCAA tournament rockets up to 84%. They lose, it goes down to 63, which isn't a huge drop. But if Wake Forest can win on Saturday in Charlottesville, I think, you know, the, the metrics say it, but I think also just when you when you think about the narratives and the the resume and stuff like that, Ben, if Wake Forest wins, you you just got to feel a whole lot better about Wake Forest, where Wake Forest stands right now, where it's kind of like that, like, I don't know, like maybe, you know, potentially, depending on what they do, Virginia makes that a lot easier if you go win that game. Yes, I totally agree with you. And, you know, you look at the last couple, you know, you're getting into the the stretch run here of conference play. There are seven games remaining, counting Saturday. You look at what's left on the schedule. So, obviously, at Virginia, you would love to have that one. That is a win that would stay quad one, one you can hang your hat on. Pittsburgh at home must win at Notre Dame must win at Virginia Tech I think is a must win if you don't beat Virginia on the road Saturday and then I think the final two games at home also are must wins and then you have Duke at home which would be a great game to have and I think would do even more to boost your tournament resume but I don't think it's necessarily one that is imperative that you have in order to make the NCAA tournament I think you know, there. I think Wake is blessed to have a couple more big chances to get these big wins down the stretch run, because the maddening thing is John Shire comes into the podium after the game, and the first thing that he says is, 
that's a tournament team. I don't know how you watch this team play and you don't think that's a tournament team. And team and coaches all throughout the conference say that. Jim Laranaga said that after Wake beat Miami at home. He said, wow, that team is, you know, that team's something. These, these guys can play. I don't know where they're ranked, but that team can play. So that is that is the perception of people on Twitter saying, hey, this Wake team passes the eye test. Clearly, they can play an NCAA tournament caliber of basketball. I also like to point that John Shire made afterwards. He said Wake's effectively had three different teams this season. It was pre-Efton Reed and Damari Monsanto, with Efton Reed, no Damari Monsanto, and then now you have both of them back. So there have been three sort of phases of Wake Forest teams that you've had to prepare for. But to me, that was that that was a striking comment to me to come into the locker room or not into the locker room, into the media room after this hard fought victory. And the first thing you say is, wow, that team can play. That's a tournament team. These guys, Steve Forbes is a big time coach. This is a tournament team. But like we said, like we've been talking about it, that human element has to live up to it. Metrically, Wake Forest is in the field. You know, if it were just well into the, the field, well into the field. If it were just up to the metrics, Wake Forest would be sitting pretty and not stressing one bit, provided they don't have an epic collapse the rest of the season. But you just gotta, you just gotta go continue to prove yourself. I thought the win against NC State was a huge step in the right direction. I think competing against Duke on the road, even though you didn't win, is a step in the right direction. I think Saturday is, you know, it's 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 tough to beat any team twice in the ACC, especially a Tony Bennett led team. And they won eight eight games in a row after losing to Wake Forest and are red hot. They just lost a pit. But before that, they were red hot. So this is a game that I think if you win against a Virginia team that has by and large been surging and has been remarkable at home all year and is ranked, then I think that is that becomes your win that you hang your hat on. There are a couple. I mean, that's there's a whole lot there that I'm just nodding my head on agreeing with you, Ben. And, and a few things that I've been pounding the wall on for a while. The first is the eye test. I've said over and over again that Wake Forest passes the eye test, just needs to pass the resume test. So you got seven games left to do that. The second, and the one that John Shire brought up that I feel like hasn't been discussed for a while. We talked about it a while ago, but it's been some time. And I think it has to come back into the conversation when we get closer to March. Is the team that Wake Forest is now versus the team that it was? Like the acknowledgement, there has to be a conversation. I think one would hope for Wake Forest's sake, a conversation about the team that Wake Forest was at the start of the season. The fact that your second most pivotal player could not play like the opening few weeks of the season because he was still dealing with an NCAA problem, a, a problem caused by the college ruling body. And the second you don't have one of your most important shooters because of an injury, but there has to be that acknowledgement that Wake Forest was without Efton Reed and Damari Monsanto. When you're trying to put add context to the opening part of the season, the losses to Georgia and LSU, the loss to, to Utah, things like that. There has to be that acknowledgement for, I would hope from the committee on what Wake Forest was versus the team that they are now. So I do think it's really interesting that John Shire brought that up very from a Wake Forest perspective, very appreciative. He brought that up because I hadn't thought about it in a while. And it's important to think about when, when it comes to this Wake Forest team, when you look down at the stretch for these last seven games, Wake Forest right now per Kempom is favored in six of them. So they are supposed to lose per Kempom by one at Virginia. So, Virtually a toss-up. And then you have six games in a row. Six-point win over Pitt. One-point win at home over Duke. Eight over Notre Dame. One over Virginia Tech. 14 over Georgia Tech. And four over Clemson. So some of those games, a little bit more of what Ken Palm would project to be a runaway. Some of the, the lesser opponents left on way for a schedule. But a lot of these are right there. Like, give and take just a little bit. Virginia, Virginia Tech, Clemson, Duke. All of them right there. I don't know what it's going to take for Wake Forest to get there, to get to March, to get to the dance, to get an invitation. But, and that's kind of the conversation and we could talk forever about it, Ben. So I don't want to get too deep into it, but just like, what is it going to take? I mean, it's a conversation I literally had today with someone on the way to class. What is it going to take? 
hell if I knew. Like, you would love to have the Virginia, but you probably don't need it. You would love to have Duke. Maybe you probably don't need that either. But then you probably need Virginia Tech and you probably need Clemson too. Maybe. Like, get a quad one out of that, at least with Virginia Tech. Um, But you just don't know. You just don't know. But the only thing that I do know is that Wake Forest has got to get something from somewhere. It's just how much is going to be the question. At this point, I really don't know. But it's going to be a question that's going to be asked over and over again in the next few weeks leading up to Selection Sunday in mid-March. Yeah, and I've seen this number out there on Twitter a lot. I think 12 and 8 is your minimum number that you got to get to to feel comfortable-ish heading into ACC tournament play. I'm not even sure. I think it depends on which games you win to get you to 12 and 8 in the conference before you head into tournament play. I think 13 and 7 and you feel really good and you feel really good about it going into the tournament. And then all you have to do is in the AC tournament at that point is win the games that you're supposed to win. Nobody's expecting you to pull off a Cinderella run and compete for the ACC championship in order to get a bid to the tournament. That said, the road to 13 and seven is difficult. Like you said, there are a lot of tests remaining on Wake Forest's horizon, which is by and large a good thing because the Demon Deacons do not yet have that win to hang their hat on, the one that's going to last, the one that they don't even have to sweat the metrics taking it out, the one that is not going to backdoor into a quad one. There are two chances in my mind, I think, to surefire get that. One is Saturday against Virginia, obviously on the road. That will certainly hold up as a quad one win. And then Duke, in my mind, is pretty solidified at home if you win that game to be a quad one win, if I had to guess. I don't know your thoughts on that, but that's the, that, that's my take, unless the wheels really, really fall off for Duke. But yeah, that's also the frustrating part, is you just have no idea with how in flux the bracketology predictions, however however much weight you want to give those, how in flux they have been. There's a lot of, you know, there's been some projections out there that have Wake in the first four. I wouldn't totally rule that out. I think Wake has been, like we've talked about it, a bona fide bubble team all year long. Last seven games give them an opportunity to sort of rise above that prediction and prove themselves to be more than just a bubble team. And like you said, we could I could talk about this all day long, but you got to win a certain number of games, and then I think you have to have the combination of, as Steve Forbes says it, winning the right games in order to feel really, really good. And then there's the ACC tournament, and Wake could have a great tournament run and erase doubt in that way as well. But I think that is not you know, a burden that you want to have on your program, obviously going into the tournament with how unpredictable things can be there as Wake has seen and fallen on the wrong side of in recent years. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't want to rely on that ACC tournament. If you saw what happened in 2022, I mean, I looked at the ACC tournament today. If, if things ended the way that they are right now, Wake Forest would be the number four seed. They would have a double buy. They would most likely play Clemson in the quarters for the right play North Carolina in the semis. So that would be a neutral site quad one, most likely for Wake against Clemson. You win that, you feel good. And then you have a, a low risk, high reward against North Carolina. Like things could get interesting in DC there, but you don't want that to be the scenario. And so just my last point on this kind of leading into it is if you're a Wake Forest fan, these last seven games kind of make you feel sick to your stomach because you look at this, I look at this, and I envision a scenario where Wake Forest goes 7-0. Like, I can see Wake Forest winning the rest of the games on its schedule. But you can also envision a scenario where Wake Forest loses a lot of games. I mean, take away, say, Notre Dame, maybe, and Georgia Tech. But Virginia, Pitt has been red hot. Duke, Clemson, like, you could lose all those games. Virginia Tech. Like those are five games. Like we could win all those games and be feeling really, really good or they could lose all of them. And we could be gearing up probably for the NIT. So kind of makes you sick to your stomach, but that's, that's the reality. Like that's, that's the way of the world. Um, so bubble, bubble beware. Uh, what wake will, wake will end up on one side of it and either have a really fun March or, or another year of uh, kind of kicking itself and, and getting ready for, for 24, 25. 
Moving on to, we've been talking about this important game for a while. Let's go ahead and get into it. Virginia on Saturday at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville, Virginia, 12 o'clock on ESPN2. Jay Alter and Debbie Antonelli on the call on ESPN2. Wake Forest has already played Virginia this year. As Ben mentioned, Virginia lost in the Joel in mid-January, just about a month ago. Wake Forest kind of cleaned Virginia's clocks a little bit. Uh, Virginia was a horrid road team at the beginning of the season, at the beginning of the ACC conference schedule. Wake Forest wins by 19, and it never really felt close. Wake Forest goes into halftime, six-point lead, outscores the Cavaliers 39-26 in the second half. Pretty solid shooting day for Wake Forest against a very, very good defense. Wake Forest, 50% from the field. The big one is for me was 47.6 from three-point range. And Virginia, on the other hand, I've used the term before, cannot hit water with a beach ball. 28% from the field, just not a good day for the Virginia shooters. And Wake Forest kind of had what they wanted against the Cavaliers. Two very, more so, I think Wake Forest is a similar team, but Ben, I would say Virginia is a, a very different team on Saturday. will be February 17th than what Wake Forest saw in mid-January in the Joel. Yeah, Steve Forbes made the comment after the game. He's like, it doesn't get any easier. Got to go play Virginia. I'm sure they're happy. to. I'm sure they're looking forward to playing us because they've barely lost since the last time that we faced off. And that's true. Virginia has just been red hot over the past eight, nine games, tough loss to pit the other day before that eight games in a row. <laughs> so team is really feeling it and really playing a good brand of basketball. And I think sort of got back to that, the best version of a Tony Bennett coach team. And that's the cool thing about Virginia teams. And you know why I think their program has had so much success is that they're one of those teams that just year in year out has such like a tried and true identity and, a, and a, a brand of really consistent and disciplined basketball that they play. And you know exactly how they're going to beat you, and they still can beat you so often, and they do it to so many teams. Looking at this team on Ken Palm, it's, it's just fascinating. You know, defensive efficiency, 16th in the country, and then in adjusted tempo, 362nd in the country. So that tells you right there how exactly they win games, right? And Reese Beekman is having a fantastic season. Connor O'Neill was on the pod with us before the Duke game has him had him in the conversation for all ACC first team. I think that is a valid conversation to be having right now. Reese Beekman, as a team, I like, like to talk about sort of the engine that makes certain teams go. I think in his own way, Reese Beekman is that engine. He's scoring pretty well this year. He is second in the country in assist rate, which I think is worthwhile. He's 14th in the country in steal percentage. I think he's averaging over two steals a game. So just a real menace on the defensive end. And it's going to be a big test for, I I assume you stick Reese Beekman on Hunter Salas. I mean, that is the only matchup that I can see. So Hunter Salas has been great at home on the road. I think he's combined for 55 points over the past two games, something in that range, playing remarkably efficient basketball. And the big question for Wake Forest is, will the three-point shooting travel with you to Virginia? Wake has really struggled to find consistency shooting the ball on the road this year. Can you get back to doing what you do well and find a way to blow the top off of this pack line, Virginia defense, and score some points? So I think the higher scoring this game is, the more that it benefits Wake Forest. I don't think Virginia can keep up and necessarily beat Wake Forest in a shootout. Virginia beats you by slowing the game down and grinding you into the pavement in the half court. So if Wake can find a way to play better in transition and score some transition points, I think this game favors them. That being said, this Virginia team is going to be a very, very difficult test. And I'm sure they have been able to dissect the tape from when they first lost to Wake Forest and will be a team that's, that's ready to go and playing angry on Saturday. I'm glad that you brought up the defense because Virginia's defense is really, really good. And combine that with the pace of play. The way I always look at games when teams are playing Virginia, I, I think of it like the race to 65. Like if you get to 65 points, you're going to feel pretty good about beating the Virginia Cavaliers. In the team's six losses this season, every team that has beaten them has reached 65. Wisconsin hit 65 score on the number. Wake Forest scored 66. Some teams hit 70, but 65 kind of feels like that number where if you hit that number, 
aside from a few outliers, you feel pretty good about beating Virginia. And getting into, I guess, keys of sorts, where I see this game really being won is on the three-point line. Like you mentioned Wake Forest three-point shots traveling. You'd love to have Wake Forest shot in the, the first game. Go to Charlottesville with you. 47.6% from three-point range. You have Hunter Salas drain five of eight. Hunter Salas was on fire, and he has been on fire of recent. You'd love for that to travel with you. And kind of where Virginia lost was at the three-point line as well. I mean, they ha- the percentage lies a little bit in my mind. It's 33% from three-point range. But they had so many good opportunities for some really good three-point shooters, and they just didn't fall. They went four for 12. And Virginia does have great three-point shooters. Their, their three-point percentage on the season is 18th in the country per Kempom. So they're shooting 37.8% from behind the arc. Like they've got three guys who can hit you from the three-point line. It's You have Isaac McNeely, you have Jacob Groves, Tane Murray, and Andrew Rohde. Murray and Rohde less so, but Isaac McNeely and Jake Groves can both absolutely rock you from three if you let them and wake Forest has their own bevy of three-point shooters so i think there's a battle there and and for me that feels like a really big key is the three-point defense for wake forest a hit your three-point shots which wasn't about wasn't really the key that i wrote for the preview it's the three-point defense because virginia did not hit them in winston-salem but that certainly does not mean they're not going to hit them in charlottesville and you got to ride some of these guys really hard around the three-point line, especially Isaac McNeely. If you let him get hot, he went over to in Winston, but if you let him get hot, he will be kind of the, just as much as Reese Beekman is the all-around engine, Isaac McNeely on offense will absolutely be an engine for you. So Wake Forest has really got to defend that three-point line and get on some guys' nerves a little bit and not let them shoot well. It's what it's in my mind how they won in Winston. And the second one before I kick it to you, Ben, is I I called it in the preview precious possessions because I think Wake Forest deserves some credit at Duke. They actually did a really good job, I think, at limiting turnovers. It was definitely one of the the better parts of their game, and it did not hurt them. I thought Wake Forest handled the the turnover game really, really well. When Wake Forest beat Virginia at home this season, it won despite 17 turnovers. And because of the way Virginia slows down the game – it was the highest turner, turnover percentage Wake Forest has had all season, even in losses. It was the highest turnover percentage Wake Forest has had all season. So even though that game was a victory, you know, that's a little concerning. And you're also looking at a team in Virginia that rarely turns the ball over. Their turnover percentage is fourth in the nation and their non-steal turnover percentage. So a turnover that's kind of just caused by themselves alone is number one in the nation. This is a team that never turns the ball over. It's a Tony Bennett team. And so sure. Wake Forest one was 17 in the Joel against Virginia, but possessions against the Cavaliers are oh so precious. And so minimizing how many you give away because you sure as hell know Virginia's not going to give them away. is pretty important in my mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that 17 turnover performance by Wake and the Joel, because I don't think Wake is going to have anywhere close to that margin of error again. This is Wake played Virginia when this Virginia team was a shell of what it was now. They had not fully evolved into the Tony Bennett identity, which they have embraced over the last 10 games or so, and they could not score. So yes, Wake turned the ball over a lot and got away with it because Virginia only scored 47 points and they were atrocious on the road. That margin of victory simply will not exist in this game. That's just a fact. Virginia's been great at home. Wake's been bad on the road. Margin of error. There's a margin of error gone in my mind right there. My key is going to be one that I touched on earlier. It's going to be that matchup between star guards. That That's going to be my key to the game. Who wins that matchup? Does Reese Beekman put the clamps on Hunter Salas and cause him to have an inefficient game? Hunter Salas has been powering the Wake Forest offense, especially so on the road. And Reese Beekman is also the leading scorer for Virginia, the leading assist man with six assists per game, and arguably their best player on defense. So who can Hunter Salas just the other day against NC State got, you know, DJ Horn had a great game. It's tough to say that Hunter Salas far and away, you know, got the better of him. I think Hunter Salas had two more points and Wake got the win. So 
And I think Hunter Salas was a little bit more efficient shooting the ball, if I remember correctly. But that that guard matchup is one of the reasons I'm really, really excited to watch this game is because I think it's just going to be, you know, two of the ACC's best guards sort of going at it the entire day. But who wins? Who steps up and makes a winning play in, in crunch time for this game? If it's Hunter Salas, I think Wake's in a better position to win. And But if Reese Beefman gets the better of Hunter Salas, I think Wake's, Wake's path to victory narrows a lot, just based on what I've seen from Wake on the road this year. I haven't seen... Just the consistency, it's been it's been lacking all year for this team on the road. And as you and I talked about sort of giving the wake wake the benefit of the doubt on the road, there is I don't think there's any reason for us to to do that based on how they performed. Obviously, they played very well against Georgia Tech and they beat Boston College, not the two most formidable road opponents in the conference. So that 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 to me is where the game could be won or lost is that matchup. Absolutely agree. And it kind of goes into to one of my final two keys. The first of which, which isn't really related, and it's we talked about it ad nauseum earlier, so I'm just going to say it very quickly. It was calling foul on the fouls. And it just goes into to Efton Reed's foul trouble and a little bit having Andrew Carr in some foul trouble as well, just how impactful those guys are and the fact that you need them. My last key is your practice, not theirs, yours. And... That goes into what has been a high-octane Wake Forest offense against one of the best defenses in the nation. And I think you can boil that down to exactly what you were saying there, Ben. It's Hunter Salas, one of the most high-octane offensive performing guards in the conference, against Reese Beekman, one of the best, the best defensive guard in the nation. Like, that's where I kind of put things. Like, it, it's it's Wake Forest offense against Virginia's defense is kind of how I look at things a lot. And so Steve Forbes talks all the time and players as well about making games look like your own practice, Wake Forest practice, not the opponents. And so I think that goes into how Wake Forest plays their offense against Virginia's defense, not letting Virginia's defense dictate where they slow you down. They cause you to make poor decisions and especially take some poor end of shot clock shots. That's I think where, where Virginia defense can really get you down and Wake Forest did not kind of fall into that pit of despair against them in Winston Salem. And they need to make sure they do that again. That falls on Hunter Salas that falls on Boopy Miller that falls on a lot of players that Wake Forest offense does its game plays its game. And so again, I think it's Hunter Salas right at the start there. It's Hunter Salas versus Reese Beekman. Hunter Salas dictating the kind of game on offense Wake Forest wants to play. You mentioned also the the benefit of the doubt on the road. And this is something that I thought about a lot when I was writing my prediction this afternoon. Because I was the one I've been saying, and, and you've said this too, Ben, but I said that Wake Forest has lost my benefit of the doubt on the road. Against Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech, I think they they built it a little bit. And surprisingly, I think that Duke game actually built it up a fair bit in my mind. I was very pleased with how Wake Forest played against Duke, believe it or not. Because I thought they handled the, the noise. I thought they stood and faced the music a little bit. So I had a tough time picking against Wake Forest in this game. Because I really think Wake Forest can win. I actually feel confident that Wake Forest can win. But I did not pick them. So my prediction for this game, even though I wanted to pick Wake Forest because I believe that they can go into the JPJ and win, is because they have not yet earned the benefit of the doubt. They have not yet earned my benefit of the doubt. And so I could not pick them. It's a tough place to go win, especially when Virginia is coming off a home loss. But I certainly think it's possible. I like Wake Forest matchups. If you take what they did in the first game, you certainly like it. I think it's there especially when Wake Forest needs it most, but I need them to prove it to me first. I can't pick this in them in this game, but if they win this, it'll make it a lot easier for me to pick them on the road in some future com- uh, some future matchups. So I'm going to say that road to 65, Wake Forest doesn't get there. Virginia wins 67-63. Yeah, Essex, I completely agree with you. I, you know, there's just, not enough evidence on the table for me to, in good conscience, pick Wake Forest to win this game. You know, I agree with you that the Duke, the Duke game was a step in the right direction for how this team performed on the road. 
they overcame some adversity. They weren't shooting well. Their best player was in foul trouble, and they didn't let the game get out of hand the way they did against Carolina. So that, to me, shows some more resolve on the road. That is also a moral victory. That is not winning the game. I may pick Wake to have a moral victory in this game. I think it's possible that they play well and compete and put on a really good showing against a ranked opponent on the road, but that is absolutely not the same thing as going on the road and beating one of the best home teams you know, in the country in Virginia. So I like your prediction of Wake proverbially not getting to 65. I was in the same mindset. I think Virginia takes this one 69-64. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a close game. And just before we hop off, I mean, I really do. I want to make that stipulation. I really, really, really do think Wake Forest can win this game. I just can't pick them to win. And I hope that you all who are listening and who have listened to us can understand why we're saying that. Because I think it holds true. Like, this is a winnable game. But right now, we cannot pick them to do that. Regardless, they might. 12 o'clock, Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia, John Paul Jones Arena, ESPN2. We'll see. It'll be a ball game. That's all for us on the Boots on the Ground pod. We will take a break after the Virginia game. We will be back after the pit game on Tuesday to discuss the past two and get ready for what will certainly be a very important Duke home game that coming Saturday. Thank you all for joining us for episode 30 of the Boots on the Ground pod. Alongside Ben Conroy, I've been Essex there. See you all soon. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.